good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking, fuck me, wow. We're talking, your lemon squares taste like ass. And we're talking Kirby. Just Kirby. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we are not fucking with the original this week, y'all, because we are discussing, <laughs> once and for all, Scream 4! <laughs> this is true. It was funny because I, I was like, wait, why do I feel like we've had part of this conversation already? And it's because we did a bonus episode on the 10th anniversary, and so it's like, oh yeah, we, we've teased this for a very long time. Well, I also feel like in in our previous episodes on this franchise, on Scream, on Scream 2, on Scream 3, I feel like we kept coming back to Scream 4 mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah, because we both really like this movie. I think in a way, I know that people have started to come around to this. Like, it wasn't everything people wanted it to be in 2011, and then it took a while for people to get on board this train. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you and I... I don't know, maybe we just got there earlier, but like, I've been a big fan of this film for a long time. I've wanted to talk about this film for a very long time. And I feel like you and I are very, like, in sync with our opinions on this film. Yes. Yeah, so buckle up, everyone. Um, I, I mean, obviously, at this point, you'll be able to see how long the episode is, but we are anticipating this uh, to be a very long episode of the show. <laughs> Indeed. We are not going to limit ourselves because we have things we want to talk about. I know. And so fingers crossed we get it all out. Otherwise, like, we're going to be like... <laughs> social media like oh wait i also want to say this oh wait i also want to say this <laughs> but also if we don't say something please don't say hey you forgot to talk about it oh my god people <laughs> I, I, honestly maybe we did forget about it and we're probably aware <laughs> most likely yeah wait okay so because obviously there was a lot to discuss both in terms of production and post-production and the, the reception mm-hmm. but you said you know oh maybe we were ahead of the like ahead of like liking this movie from like earlier on because you're right like in the past five years this movie has seen a significant reappraisal. Not, yeah. not everyone. Like there are still people that don't care for this movie, and um, well, I have words for them later. But, <laughs> <laughs> but they're no, not G-rated. Did like, you can remember the first time you saw this movie, right? I saw it in theaters. This was a hundred percent countdown moment. Like I was waiting for this movie mm-hmm. from the moment it got announced to be made. I was so fucking excited. I think I've said this before. I honestly thought Scream 3 was the end of the road because it came out, people didn't like it, it didn't make a ton of money, like it did well, but it didn't make a ton. And I thought, okay, well, that's the end. We're never going to get more of this. And then 11 years later, we get another sequel. It's still Kevin Williamson. It's still Wes Craven. Like, this movie was everything for me. Going into 2011, it was this and Cabin in the Woods were my two most anticipated films of the year. And I really liked it. I didn't love it, but I got there in the end. But like from the get-go, there were certain things like I loved Kirby. I loved the Jill reveal. There were like mm. it was so good to see Sydney and Dewey and Gail back together again. Just all these things. I I didn't ever think I'd see this again. And 
the fact that we're recording this, you know, a couple of weeks before we get to see the fifth film, Trace, oh, is like, I know. it's it's all back there again. I, know. I agree with you. And so I, I, I saw this um, opening night. It was actually, mm-hmm. I, I've said this a million times before, but it is the first, like, official date that my husband and I had. Um, yeah, and so, because so, Scream really as a franchise is what brought us together. You know, my, my husband did not like me when he met me. He thought, I, I mean, I was a 21-year-old <laughs> kid who was, you know, You were the old. worst. I was not great. Um, but, but, but our love of horror, and specifically our our love of Scream is really what brought us together. So without Scream, and I'm I, this sounds really hyperbolic, but I'm being totally serious. Mm-hmm. Without Scream, we probably would not be married today. And wow. so our first day being Scream 4, I did love it out the gate. Okay. But that being said, I will say that the midnight showing that Thursday night um, with a theater that was maybe a quarter full, I, I anticipated doom. <laughs> Yeah, didn't get the warm reception you were hoping for, huh? No, and the other reviews are pretty mixed. They were, and we'll, I mean, we'll talk oh, about this in boy. a minute. But I have, I have thoughts about those critic responses. Oh, trust me, I, I did something I've never done before. I went through and I like pull, I read every single negative review from all of the Rotten Tomatoes uh, top critics. You know, like the big, the big oh, okay. heavy hitters, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I pulled quotes. Oh, <laughs> we have receipts and we're going to read them on air. And I have names and I have credentials. <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I, I was very frustrated reading some of this stuff. But Oh, they are so off the mark, some of these people. I had to wonder what film they were watching. Very much so. And, and you know, for you, because you said, you know, you didn't love it on a first viewing. Have you come around to loving it or are you like still in like, I, I really like it, but I don't love it type thing? So this is my third favorite film in the franchise. So it's Mm -hmm. still two, one, four, three. Yep, that's my ranking too. Excited to see where five comes in with this. But um, (laughs) I mean, I think part of the issue for me, I've talked about this before as well. I have an issue with expectations. Like I go into something and if I have been overhyped, it is really hard for something to deliver everything I want it to be. It's why I end up often championing smaller films because I don't know what to expect from them. And then I get pleasantly surprised where something like Scream, I just have so, I have so much wrapped up, like so much emotional investment in the franchise. So yeah, you know, like I went in and I was really excited. And one of the things that really frustrated me initially, and I've come around to, but it still isn't my favorite part of this film is the Dewey Gale relationship. Because their chronology as a couple, both real life and in the film universe, was like this, I don't know, it was like a Disney fantasy for me. And this film, you know, for better or worse, shows them on the rocks a little bit. And every time I watch it, I always just feel like Gail's being really unfair to Dewey. And I kind of hate that it mirrors the fact that they were going through a divorce in real life at the time. It's just, it's a bummer. It is. And, you know, I mean, we'll talk about this more when we get into the plot. But, you know, there's a bunch of deleted scenes on this Blu-ray. And one of them, and it is, you don't get a bunch more Dewey and Gail in these scenes. But there Mm -hmm. is one scene. It's right in the beginning after they wake up. And, like, she's brushing her teeth and he's peeing. And they're... <laughs> but 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 it's it's like thirty seconds of them just talking and like mm-hmm. you know he says oh I can't go to the book thing because I have this other thing blah 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 and it's just a little moment where it's like right. ah like I would have like it's the same way how I feel about like I, I wish in all the films like we had more of like Sid and Gail together because that's mm-hmm. I feel like that's a dynamic we really haven't fully explored in a post Scream One world yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And granted, I mean, like, hopefully we get that in five, as that's what the ads seem to be portraying. But <laughs> right. Yeah. But but yeah, it, I, I do get it. And this is not a perfect film. I know that people have issues with the, I guess, the recently dubbed or formerly dubbed Instagram filter that is over the entire film. <laughs> yep. Didn't ever realize it until people brought it to my attention. And then, oh, yeah, it's hard to unsee now. So thanks for that, everyone. <laughs> it really is. And I mean, like, granted, like, well, I'll get into, I'll get into some other issues later but um it's the point where i'm like you know what that just is what this movie is i I don't love it because yeah especially in the early scenes like once we get to like the post opening credits like it's it's very glowy like like the the Mm -hmm. there are rays of light coming off of characters in this movie (laughs) yeah everybody's got a bit of shiny face syndrome oh yes uh some reviews were really quick to point out too about um the skin color of hayden panettiere and how it looked like she'd just been using a bunch of suntan lotion the entire time Oh, gosh, because a teenage girl living in California would never do that. (laughs) Also, like, relevance to the plot or the critique of the film. Well, hello, welcome back to Hollywood. We love to comment (laughs) on young women's looks as though it's a value judgment on their acting talent. Yeah, Um, but no, I mean, warts, and we'll talk about the warts, because yes, there are issues with this movie. I'm with you. This is still ranked third, two, one, four, three. It is an A minus film for me, and mm-hmm. I say that like a four and a half out of five. Like knowing, yeah, same, mm-hmm. knowing the issues, it's just a thing where I, I'm so in love with these characters, and I'm so in love with this world and being in this world. Mm-hmm. And also, I I've watched like I mean like so many different fan edits and like oh my gosh, I had no idea. I had no idea until we started going down this <laughs> rabbit hole and was like, oh wow, okay. And and to me, that almost suggests that there is so much more love for this film because people are tinkering with it to try to get it even just a little bit better. It's not like oh we fixed it. Like it's not a Last yeah. Jedi situation. It's people saying oh well if you actually insert this cut scene here or change this little line of dialogue because kevin williamson was once again at the fucking mercy of the weinsteins Mm -hmm. it makes the film just that much better i'm making little motions with my hand that you can't see and you are right and we'll go into this a little bit more in a bit with these alternate cuts and stuff but yeah like y'all if y'all can find some of these things like there's they're fascinating some of them are some of them are not good but some of them (laughs) some of them are really good (laughs) and some of them color corrected so you don't have that filter it's weird. It's wild. And I kind of love that the audience is so dedicated to this franchise that we are doing this work. Well, and that's the thing. So before, like, we're about to go into this production here. But I I can't remember if I felt the buzz and the hype around this when it came out. I remember mm. my buzz and my hype. I was stoked for this movie, oh my God, just like yes. you. I feel like it was muted. Like, people were trepidatious. Why are we bringing this back? I think it was very much they got the gang back together. That was where the excitement lay, but also the feeling of can Scream still be relevant? Well, and it's also because slashers were like a dying subgenre by that point. So mm-hmm. <laughs> 10 years later, like we're back into it. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but the thing, you know, like what? Sorority Row had flopped two years mm-hmm. prior. Like we hadn't really, it was all about paranormal activity. Um, Saw mm-hmm. 7 had come out the year before. So that was already running on fumes. Like it was yep. just horror was about, to, it was in a transitional phase because what, uh, I think like a week before, two weeks before this came out, Insidious came out. And that Ooh. was the mm-hmm. big thing. Right? Right. Yeah, I remember a lot of people saying, well, what are they going to lampoon? Are they going to try to do J-horror? Are they Mm -hmm. going to do, yeah, found footage films? Like, people really didn't know what there was to be meta about anymore. 
which is hilarious because the film, when you watch it now, even I would argue when you watched it back in 2011, it is incredibly prescient about the way that we handle social media and fame. Oh, trust me. I saw an article, too, that was linking it to our our upcoming, like, obsession with true crime. Because Serial Podcast would premiere three years after Mm -hmm. this movie came out. Like, so much of that is here, and very few critics saw that in 2011. (laughs) Or it's the most surface-level criticisms that I've seen. Like, people say, Mm -hmm. oh, well, this Jill Roberts character, her motivation is really weird. You know, it's not personal like it was in the other films. You know, it's so vapid. She's just a rich, entitled brat. And you're like, yeah. "Uh, Yeah. Also, I mean... If if you know anything about some of the people they were trying to get for these stab openings at the beginning, you're like, ugh, it almost would have been better if they could have gotten Paris Hilton for one oh, of I know. these. Like, I think it would have solidified some of the messaging that they were trying to get across. And we'll obviously be going into Jill's stuff later. But yeah, Roger Ebert's review was like, oh, the motive is eventually revealed, but I wouldn't go so far as to say it's explained. And I'm like, oh really? God. This 10 minutes where she's explaining it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not rocket science. <laughs> Um, but no, you are right. And uh, a lot of service level criticisms. But before we get into that reception even more than we already have, let's talk about how this came to be. Because okay. it didn't have to happen, right? Mm-mm. So Scream 4 is announced by the Weinstein Company in July of 2008. And, you know, normally I wouldn't really care. I was okay, let's figure out what, what what's happening here. This is one month after production ended on My Soul to Take, which was Wes Craven's penultimate film. So I was like, right. I wonder... Because that, that film also had some issues. Like it, I think it was like mm-hmm. delayed by like a whole a year and a half because, well, it's not a good movie. But <laughs> <laughs> go and listen to our recent Patreon episode from back in December where we talk about trailers that are better than the film if you want to get a sense of how good that film came out. Yes. Wes Craven wasn't attached at this point, though. So they're like, yeah, we're doing Scream 4. And Ugh. Craven's like, oh, I wouldn't mind directing it if the script was as good as the script for the first film. <laughs> <laughs> feels like Craven saying, well, I'm not coming back because there's no way you're going to top that. Also, fuck you both. Yeah, I mean, it's July 2008, so it's like a, almost a full three years before the movie actually comes out. And it isn't until January of 2010, so a year and a half later after the announcement, that Kevin Williamson confirmed his return. Wow. Yeah, and so I wonder if there was... Honestly, it sounds like a lot of scheduling shit, which, of course, this is always what's happening with Kevin always. Williamson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's got a fucking TV show. So with Scream 3, you know, he was working on Dawson's Creek and he was too busy with Scream 4. Well, he made the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But Weinstein kept adding more time to it, so he had to go back to the Vampire Diaries. Right, yes, because that would have been in full swing by this point. Yeah, so Kevin Williamson in January 2010 says, okay, yeah, the fourth film production will begin during the hiatus of the Vampire Diaries, and Craven will direct the film. Uh, It was two months later in March of 2010 that it was confirmed Craven would indeed direct. And it's also a thing, too, where it's like, okay, March 2010, the movie comes out in a year. Um, Mm -hmm. Not a lot of time. This this is such a recurring thing, right? It's almost like we announce the film and then we'll figure things out. And it's like, folks, I know that sometimes this is what happens in Hollywood, but that's not a great way to make a movie. Well, and the thing is, too, so this movie comes out in April of 2011. I had read some reports that were like, oh, no, the original planned release date was October, October of 2010. Yeah. So, like, mm-hmm. I was just like, I don't... What the fuck? 
I have no clue. I don't know what was going on here. So, but before we get into the production, so this is something I did not know. In May of 2010, Kathy Conrad, who produced the first three films, filed a $3 million lawsuit against the Weinstein Company, alleging that they had violated a written agreement that entitled her company, Cat Entertainment, first rights to produce all the films in the series. Mm-hmm. The Weinsteins argue that this contract required Conrad's services be exclusive to the franchise, which Conrad calls false pretext, claiming the previous film did not require this condition. That's a lot of legal jargon that I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a bunch of what? Yeah. The suit accuses the Weinsteins of surreptitious behavior and, and I quote, a scheme to force plaintiffs to walk away mm. from the Scream franchise without compensation, enabling them to cut costs by hiring someone else to produce. Um, this new producer, by the way, was actually Craven's wife, not named in the lawsuit. But huh. this is a, yeah, this is a lot. I don't put it past the Weinsteins to be doing no. something to like force someone out of the film, by the way. Oh, absolutely not. Like everything that we have talked about with the previous three entries have confirmed that they are lizards in human skin who will do everything and anything for money. Yes. And here's the thing. Again, I don't remember. Like, I feel like I saw a lot of marketing for this movie, but maybe it's because I was hunting it out. Mm. In April of 2011, so the month this movie is released, it was reported that the Weinsteins had settled out of court with Conrad, the details remaining confidential, though it was claimed that she would receive a cash payment plus a percentage of the profits from Scream 4. She yeah. would also go on to executive produce the Scream TV series on MTV. Well, sorry, huh. MTV for two seasons, VH1 for one season. Right. And going back to Buzz, I do think that while that Scream TV series was wildly up and down in quality, mostly down. Uh-huh. I think we have that to thank for this resurgence of a fan base because I do think that a lot of Gen Zers watched that show and right. because of it sought out the films. And that's why I feel like we are feeling more excitement around this new entry. Hmm. That is very interesting. Yeah, I feel like we've speculated on that. I think back when we covered Scream 3. Mm-hmm. And of course, folks, if you want to hear our thoughts on that disastrous third season of the TV show, we do have an episode on it. But I will say one of the things you and I discovered is like, there is a very vocal Scream fan base who is quite a bit younger, who has a very different opinions than you and I on yep. the TV show. And yeah, like, I, I don't doubt that there is a whole other generation of people who have kept this franchise alive and we probably don't give them enough credit for that yeah no and so that's why like i'll never i mean i've obviously criticized the tv show but i will never shit on it because while it may not be solely responsible for the reason we have a fifth entry coming out Mm -hmm. i do think it's a part of the reason why we have it coming out absolutely and I, i think that's a great example of also looking beyond things that are maybe designed specifically for you like that was very clearly designed for a new generation of scream fans of which we had aged out and this is just me purely speculating but going back to this lawsuit because it was reported the month this movie came out i do wonder and again i have no proof of this but Mm -hmm. if the money paid to conrad was taken out of the marketing budget (laughs) for scream (laughs) (laughs) 4 okay now we're going into wild speculation and conspiracy theory but yeah it i don't know it it's hard I can't say with any certainty whether or not they pulled back on some of the marketing for the film, but it the hype was definitely not the same. Like, I, I actually feel like it's better for this new film. But also, we live in a completely different world. Like, back in 2011, we were still very much like, everybody still had cable, so we were running a yeah. lot of television commercials. <laughs> 
exactly. So yeah, I mean that that's like well, that's not the end of the drama, but let's let's move forward. So in the yeah. writing, <laughs> let's start the production and new drama. <laughs> so with the writing, you know, Craven had gone on record saying, "Oh, like the endless sequels, the modern spew of remakes, film mm-hmm. studios, and directors are the butt of the parodies in the film. The main characters have to figure out where the horror genre is in current days to figure out the modern events happening to and around them." Kevin Williamson expressed his desire to tell a story in which the audience would really care about the characters, like with Sidney Prescott, who survived the first three films, and focus on them rather than the next kill (laughs) in comparison to other films like those of the Saw franchise. And I was like, okay – that's sort of. fair, but that is how I. But that is how I've always felt about these films. Like it's not exclusive oh, yeah. to four, you know. No, no. But honestly, hearing the two men, like really the people who have shepherded mm-hmm. this franchise across four different entries, they just fucking got it right. Like they always know exactly how to talk about the franchise and why it matters. And I feel like they are speaking the exact same language as the audience. Like the reason that we love screen films are the same reasons that they love making them. And that just feels so rare when you're getting, I'm just going to say it, some soulless remakes and reboots and sequels and stuff, like particularly nowadays. Well, and that's the thing too. All these reviews that were coming out there were like, oh, it's it's uninspired. Oh, fuck off. Again, we'll get into it. But I was just like, (laughs) what movie are these people watching? So I know. I know. Okay. So, you know, we've said, okay, Kevin Williamson did write this film. He does have the sole screenwriting credit. But as Mm -hmm. most of us know, that is not completely true. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Scream 3 writer Aaron Kruger, and I feel like Aaron Kruger gets so much shit on him because of the Scream 3. No, I I know. But here's the thing. I don't think he's – I mean, he wrote the remake for The Ring. You know, he's Mm -hmm. done a lot of good work. He has, yeah. The problem is, yeah, he just didn't nail these characters in Scream 3. So, Hmm. while I don't know exactly what is his here – I feel like for the most part, a lot of this dialogue does feel seamlessly uh, Williamsonian. Yeah, it feels like a return to form, but there's still a couple of clunkers, and I can't help but wonder, like, okay, which ones of these are Williamson's and which ones are Kruger's? And not to say that I'm laying blame on bad dialogue or bad Mm -hmm. situations explicitly on Kruger. It's not like Kevin Williamson is invaluable, but there's certain lines that really pop in this movie, and there are others that just kind of, like, land a little bit more flat well and i mean fuck even craven wrote some lines like when we get the reshot opening when uh she's like Mm. i have a 4.0 gpa and like you're the blonde with the big tits that's craven writing Ugh, and I love those lines. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> so, okay, okay. So Kruger is brought in during production to do rewrites, but unfortunately, it wasn't just Kruger that was brought in. Additional rewrites were also made by Paul Harris Boardman, and I looked up his credits. So he's a regular Scott Derrickson collaborator. So with Derrickson, huh. he co-wrote Urban Legends Final Cut, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and Deliver Us from Evil. Okay. Uh, yeah, mixed bag a little bit. Yeah, and so again, like basically, we have three hands in the pot here. I would go as I'm gonna assume sixty to seventy percent of it is Williamson. Yeah, I mean, it, it's impossible to tell, right? I mean, unless yeah. we can talk to Kevin Williamson in the future, then we may not ever know. Please manifest that, everyone. <laughs> okay, but I did some more research. So I wanted to find like these quotes, and I always thought that this was like kind of a secret. One week before the film opens, Kevin Williamson does an interview with Entertainment Weekly. And this is kind of a long quote, so bear with me. Okay. This is what he tells them. Oh, I got in a big fight with Bob Weinstein. (laughs) God love him. I've worked with the man for 16 years out of my 16-year career. 
We get in some fights. We're a very dysfunctional family over there at the Weinstein Co. We got into a massive fight creatively, and we hugged it out, and then we moved on. I felt strongly about this, and he felt strongly about that, and then I did this, and that wasn't right. Everyone was second-guessing everything because everyone wanted it to be so perfect, which Hmm. I get, get, like, right, Right. but unfortunately with something like this, you just have to trust the writer. I mean, honestly, it's... It's always a marvel to me how much influence and honestly, how much meddling the wine scenes have done. And folks, if you need a reminder, Bob is arguably, I mean, not arguably, Bob is the better of the two brothers, (laughs) but it's very clear that they have always, I don't know, it just feels like they have too much of a vested interest in these films. Like I get that they're putting a ton of money up behind Mm -hmm. them, but you just don't hear about this at other studios like... I don't know. I, yeah. Again, we, we've said it before. We're just going to keep saying it. It's exciting to consider what we're going to get with Scream 5 where we won't have had them involved and meddling and changing things. Well, and Williamson goes on to say kind of a version of what you just said. He says, the one thing that Bob and I connect on very basically, why we've worked successfully together for 16 years, is we're passionate. And mm-hmm. no one is more passionate than Bob Weinstein. And it is that passion that allows you to make a movie where he will believe in you and trust in you. And it's also that passion that can cause fights and cause struggle. <laughs> and this is where we're trying to get into like the dirty of it. He goes, for 16 years, he's kept me gamefully employed. I love him. Yes, we got into the fight, but then the big clincher came. Contractually, I had signed on to do the Vampire Diaries. You know, the little thing called first and second position? I was in first position to do Vampire Diaries and second position to do Scream 4. So guess what? It was a contractual thing. Warner Brothers called up and they said, dude, where are you? You have a show that's on the air. Where are you? (laughs) You are needed back on set. He goes, I did double duty as much as I could, but the Vampire Diaries was also very important to me. But then one blog got a hold of it. It's fine. What are you going to say? Yeah, we got into a massive fight. But at the same time, the fight ended. We hugged it out. We continued forward. We tried to make the best movie possible, but it was also very raw and sensitive. And what I love is... When Entertainment Weekly asked if he and Bob Weinstein were on good terms again, Mm -hmm. he said, oh, I haven't talked to him yet, but it's Bob. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) The question is, did they ever talk again? Who knows? It's, yeah, I mean, so uh, this is kind of when you kind of hear the plea. He says, you know, uh, it's, I'm very supportive of the film. I hope everybody likes it. Not for a second would I dare to do what Wes and Nev and Courtney and David and Bob Weinstein, who made my career. The reality is I did work very hard on the film. I did my darndest to try and make a really good movie. I gave it my all. I Mm. wrote everything I thought I could write. Then they had to film it and I had to get back to the Vampire Diaries. So... I think I really contributed. I hope it all turns out well. My fingers are crossed. So it sounds like he was involved up to a point and then he walked away. And I think based on how it all came about, I wonder if he even ever saw the finished product. I have no idea. And it really is a thing where it's like, well, they they had a script, but they Mm -hmm. kept adding and tinkering to it, which would have been fine if Williamson was able to be there for all this, but he literally wasn't. So Mm -hmm. they had to bring in someone else, which enter Aaron Kruger, enter Paul Harris Boardman, you know? Enter Sandman, yeah. The only other thing, and this is this is a Craven quote, and this is uh, with Total Film. During production, Craven tweeted <laughs> tweeted <laughs> that he was no longer in control of the script as Scream Three writer Aaron Kruger came in to rework Williamson's draft. And when Total Film asked him about that tweet, Craven replies, "I was just stating the fact." 
In yeah. some ways, it's a Wes Craven film, and, and in, in some ways, it's not entirely because it's not a script I have control of. It's ultimately controlled by what the studio wants in the script. My job is much more bringing whatever experience and expertise and creativity I can. And then he pauses and he goes, look, because he, he, he knew what they were trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, they're trying to dig up dirt. Yeah. He goes, look, there was a bumpy period when things shifted over from Kevin to Aaron. I signed up to do a script by Kevin, but unfortunately that didn't go all the way through shooting. But it is certainly Kevin's script and concept and ideas and themes. So I didn't realize it was that early, like, again, around the time of the film's release where they were that upfront about Mm -hmm. these behind the scenes issues. It's surprisingly candid, but I think it's just because, A, it's a screen film and the people who were following it, like you and I and a bunch of other fans, I'm sure we were feasting on every little morsel, right? So oh, yeah. um, I think to a certain extent, they were probably also looking to just squash or make sure, maybe give some reassurance to people like, hey, you probably know that Kevin Williamson was involved and then he wasn't and we're not in a screen three situation here like this yeah. is mostly kevin's script west craven is still directing you can take some some reassurance that you're mostly going to get what we wanted you to get but also we're not going to pretend like it didn't happen because the internet exists well and i do wonder if that drama which again it's out before the movie comes out mm-hmm. played into some of this reception quite possibly like people like oh like treble production it's like I'm going to write some of this movie off and just bleh, whatever. I mean, it's shocking to me the number of people who still want to pretend like movie reshoots aren't a regular thing. So like you'll you'll hear about them on films and immediately we all just go to a dark place and it's like uh, most films actually have to go back and do some pickups like hopefully you don't want Wes Craven to have to redo entire parts of the opening or entire pieces of a set piece. But it's not that uncommon. Well, yeah, and we'll get to those reshoots because, yeah, you're right. I would argue that uh, I don't think either one of those reshoots were necessary, but we'll talk about them in a minute because before we get to the actual filming, (laughs) let's talk about the original drafts for this script. And Joe, I think we might need some help on this one because, uh, to my knowledge, you have not read an alternate draft of this script, have you? (laughs) No, I don't read scripts, so (laughs) I'm completely in the dark here. Okay, cool. Well, let's go pull our, uh, our guest waiting in the wings. All right, everyone. Uh, you have you know him from the show, actually, but he's also uh, it's my daughter, Rebecca Ann Leland. <laughs> <laughs> that joke will never not be great. Well, that, yeah, no, that's funny for it, it is my husband, Ari Drew. Please, well, b- welcome, Ari. Hi, thank you, thank you for having me back. Um, it's it's always fun. Well, <laughs> why did you want to? Because you, when we were planning this, you were like, "Can I come on and say something about this movie?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure." So, wh- why why do you? Why do you want to talk about this movie? Well, I I feel like this movie has gotten kind of a mixed rap for so long that it mm-hmm. just feels nice to stand up for it when I can. Um, <laughs> yes, and like it follows, which is a the last episode I was on. This actually was one of my uh, staples during a uh, lockdown. I watched this movie in different versions. Like, I don't know, no less than like 10 times, I think, in the last year and a half. So, and we've talked about, you know, some of these different fan edits. I know you've watched a lot of the fan. How many different fan edits do you think you've seen? Um, There aren't like a ton out there that are fully like fleshed out, I guess. There are, there are like mm-hmm. scenes that have been recut by fans. Right. Um, But I probably have seen three that are properly start to finish, you know, re-edits of the film. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, w- what we've done just now is we've gone through some of the... You know, the, the writing troubles of the production of the film. Mm, but mm-hmm. you've, you've read a draft of the original screenplay, have you not? Yes, I have. Uh, well, 
Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so this draft is probably uh, one of the earlier ones, I would think. A mutual friend shared it a while ago. Um, and so, of course, in my marathon rewatching of Scream 4, I read it. And it's really interesting because it kind of, it's, it, it is Kevin's, one of his earliest drafts, that I think it's a little bit slower and simpler, I would hmm. say, than, it, than what we get. Do you remember how long it was? 116 pages, maybe. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, for for non-film school people, uh, roughly a good rule of thumb is like a page of a screenplay is about roughly, again, a minute mm-hmm. of screen time. And that's the whole document that was that long. So, oh, wow. Like, you know, that's okay. like cutting a couple of pages, probably. Okay. That would have made it the shortest film by far, then. Yes. It does feel short. Um, that script feels really contained, and it it is a little bit more reminiscent of one than four ended up being, which... I could see working for some folks um, in its simplicity, but I also think that there are things that we ultimately got in the final cut that really elevate this film and kind of help it stand on its own. Right. And, so, you know, and so, I, I mean, I guess I can go through and yeah, no, I mean, like, chat about some of the main differences that I that I think that really that particular draft, uh, where it differs. So one of the things I guess that I personally had took most issue with when reading the draft and, and thinking about the final film is just how many little ties to the original were cut. Mm. That was a bummer for me because it doesn't take much to throw in a little nod. And I can't for the life of me really understand why the decisions would be made to cut that content. Just knowing the fan base and how much, you know, we're, we're very much into details. Right. Interesting. Cause would y'all call this a legacy sequel? Yes, absolutely. What do you mean by that? So, like, like, Halloween 2018 is a legacy sequel. You know, it's, like, years or decades sometimes after the last entry or the original film. Uh-huh. What's another example of a legacy sequel? Um, I can give you an example of one that, like, would not be considered. Like, so when they came up with Prometheus and everybody said, oh, my God, we're going to get the alien origin story. And then it feels like it has very little connective tissue to the original franchise. Mm-hmm. Jurassic World could be seen as a legacy sequel oh, yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, um, oh, but, yeah. Oh, but, yeah. But, but, so, but the only reason, so you mentioned, oh, like, cutting away ties from the first film why would they cut it my only thing is i will look at halloween 2018 or halloween kills <laughs> i think the difference i think the difference though with this franchise is the continuity is uh, through there it's is always a there. very yeah. obvious through right line. like those other examples are they're kind of just resets in different ways and i don't love like how uh, oh they're rebooting this it's just like kind of like a weird way to avoid saying sequel or remake i, mm-hmm. I feel like because most things considered a reboot serve as either of those mm-hmm. maybe like um you know, unless you're taking the lore and just completely writing a new story, that I could see maybe as a reboot of a character or like mm-hmm. a, a villain or whatever. But I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, so whenever people have called like four or even five coming up a reboot, I'm like, oh, just say it's a sequel. If the if the continuity is the same, it's a sequel. You can call it whatever kind of sequel you want. Yeah, but it's a sequel. It's interesting that you say that because I feel like those are less creative decisions and more marketing and publicity decisions where mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. thinking ahead and saying, well, if we're trying to get a new audience, like even the tagline for this movie, right? It's new decade, new, new rules. rules. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. New decade, new rules. What they're very clearly trying to connote is, hey, grandpa, we know we've already got you in the <laughs> bag because you love the original three films we're trying to go after your nieces your nephews your, your <laughs> schooler kind of audience like they wanted to try to make this hip and fresh and cool because they were worried that if they relied solely on the audience for scream three that isn't good enough right 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 and, and, and i get that and i think that that's um that you know unfortunately that's where kind of the business side of things and the creative side of things clash a lot in mm-hmm. franchises i think and it's 
more of a disservice to the fan base that made these franchises so successful. And I think I've, we've seen that a few times with some other franchises. I guess I don't want to get into that right now because I don't want to start a fight. <laughs> <laughs> so Ari, can you tell us what were some of the references to the original? That yeah. Were so in the original, there's uh, Jenny and Marnie, who are the, the official opening deaths in four. Mm-hmm. There is a line cut where Marnie says something like, it's after when Jenny says, oh, the original were based on Sidney Prescott's life. And then everything after was made up. There's a part where Mon- Marnie interrupts and says, oh, yeah, my mom went to high school with her mom or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like just something like, like it's very brief. There is a, this is funny because in the hospital scene, which there's a bit of that that's been cut out of the, the official movie that was yeah. actually filmed, but I don't think this was ever filmed where doctor, uh, the doctor treating them as Dr. Orth. It's actually Stephen Orth's older oh, brother. Oh, yes. And he is actually so credited as such. <laughs> so he has a name. I mean, that that is who that is. It's just they they kind of removed the whole purpose of him. There's a scene where he talks to Sydney and she recognizes the name and, and acknowledges that she knows who he is. And he's mm-hmm. kind of bitter that um, that his brother has been kind of relegated to like the no-name victim where Casey is like the main, you know, so it's kind of, and actually I think it it maybe throws a little bit of a red herring vibe on him and, Hmm. but then he doesn't come back. Right. You know, so it's like, it's a really brief scene. I could see why they cut it because it feels inconsequential, I Mm -hmm. think, if they weren't going to use it more. But I thought that was an interesting thing to have in there. I don't think it would have hurt if they would have thrown a mention, maybe not make him so bitter (laughs) about that, which I get that it would be hard to... (laughs) To not be better if your brother died and no one really seemed to care. But, right. But yeah, that was one of the nods. And then the last, there there are other little ones, but the last one that I really love, that I really, really wish they would have kept. And this would actually would have been good kind of filling in the gaps for maybe newer fans, is um, there's whenever Kirby is in the guest house with Sydney Tate doing the trivia mm-hmm. when, when Charlie's strapped to the chair. The first question the killer asks is, who is the killer in Stab? And she lists uh-huh. all of the killers in, in sequence, like by full names. <laughs> so we get her talking oh. about Billy Loomis, Stu Mocker, um, Mickey Altieri, Debbie Salt, a.k.a. Debbie Loomis. Like, she does it <laughs> like that. And I think wow. that that would have been so great if she would have, if that would have happened. Did she go into the sequels, like like five, six, seven? No. She oh, see, that would have been <laughs> And maybe that's why that, I mean, maybe that's why they got cut. Because there actually is more, I guess, like the... Well, I can touch on that in a little bit. But the, anyway, as far as the the little ties, those are things that I missed. I think they could have been cool. I think fans would have appreciated that. And maybe it would have felt a little more tied. Like, it would. I think maybe that would have brought a sense of cohesion to the linking this to the original trilogy a little more for, for established fans. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't change anything drastically in the mm-hmm. script or anything. But I don't know. I think those nods would have been... This is so entitled, and I forgive me for this. <laughs> We've obviously been fans for like you know almost three decades now, but I just feel like fans like we deserve those little nods. I think it's nice. It's mm-hmm. like a nice little testament to how long we stuck with this franchise, and it, and it's a long running franchise that you know again it's like it, it like Chucky. You know, Chucky I think is probably the horror franchise that has the yeah. most consistent yeah. through line, and I don't I don't think Scream will ever get well, to that many films. But. I do wonder too because I mean like we talk about fan service to the to the cows come home because it's like right. you can do fan service right or wrong and like in recent yeah. memory like Joe and I have discussed Halloween Kills to us is fan service done wrong. Agreed. Mm-hmm. For me personally, Spider Man No Way Home is fan service done really right. Agreed. But it's like it's one of those things where it, with with Scream like maybe because it it's self aware and it is meta maybe that's why like nods like that wouldn't bother me as much. Like the movie isn't grinding to a halt. So like look at this thing from the first movie over here. Right, right. You know. 
And there already are those nods, you know, like the Charlie being tied to the chair like Steve is, mm-hmm. you know, like that. I think that served a really, like, I remember when that happened, we were like, oh, it's like Steve. Yeah. This is mm-hmm. fucking cool. But, but if you don't get it, it doesn't matter. Right. Exactly. exactly. And that's the best way to do it. That's what I have a little hope for, I think, with uh, well, a lot of hope for with five, like the way that the new creators are talking about fan service and like things that fans will enjoy. They f- it feels like a little more nuance but anyhow we'll, we won't get into yeah, that. We'll, 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 we'll head to the patreon for episode on scream 2022 <laughs> anyhow no i'm just saying that, i think that speaks to though like the knowledge of super fans think knowing how important that kind of and i and i don't even want to call it fan service because it feels so cheap but it's kind of like honoring the the fan base that has made this so successful by kind of saying hey like we know how much you care about and respect these characters and their stories and let's mm-hmm. acknowledge some of the other terrible shit that's happened to them and not pretend like it didn't yeah right and there there is more explicit mentioning of that in this initial draft i feel like sydney the, the other characters feel more directly impacted like uh oh another thing is you see um there's a very intentional shot in the script that's supposed to be of gail's her books so it shows woodsboro murders but then it also shows like the next couple of books that she wrote, um, oh. one based on uh, Windsor and one based on the Hollywood murders. So I think oh, that would have wow. been cool. That wouldn't have hurt anything. Oh, know? yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't even think about that, too. Like, we haven't gotten the sequel books from her. And they talk about that. I mean, they exist in, like, the, in like the uh, I want to say in canon, they exist because they are talked about in, in mm-hmm. some official, you know, in official content, but... Okay, so these are like little little details. I think yeah. it's great for fans too. But like, are, yeah. what about like are we like, like scenes that were completely removed that would alter the 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 trajectory of the film? Yeah, or- the next thing I noted was just kind of like kind of the well, this script in general. There's a lot that's completely cut, mm-hmm. um, and I can jump to that. So there's a whole like side character who again is credited still under this name, the teacher, Mister Baker. Oh yes, okay. Yeah, he's uh, essentially he's a red herring, and he's about in the film as much as you know Rebecca is in the final cut. It feels like mm. oh wow originally so he's supposed to actually be a younger teacher in the final casting i think they had an older gentleman cast as him yeah but he was meant to be like a you know like a young cool teacher or whatever <laughs> um but again he's meant to be a red herring and he actually at one point in the original script is arrested for the murders because he gets framed they find a mask and phone it's like a very obvious Billy. framing they like find it in his trunk yeah right so he gets arrested and then there's like an interrogation scene oh and that's repurposed into sydney the stuff being in sydney's trunk in the final cut. yes yeah so that shot uh, where you okay. see that like that's essentially what would have happened mm, to him interesting. Um, so he's yeah he's definitely in it there's definitely a little bit like i guess the the whole the killers filming the murders that is completely different in the final script that's not in it so essentially yeah so the idea is really it's kind of like it's just a remake that they are doing a remake and that element of oh they're filming it like and uploading it live which i do think is a really strong part of the final film oh it's huge Yeah. yeah but it's not there it's just it's a little more simply like Oh, Jill is the new Sydney and blah, blah, blah. And, and so the killer, okay. like he, you know, the, his first call with Jill, I believe he says something like, I choose you. And it's, it's basically positioning her way more obviously as you are the new final girl and this is what we're doing. But now. she's still the killer in the final. And yes, the, the killers are the same. So okay. going on the remake thing, though, I do wonder, like, had this been made and come out in 2006, 2007, mm. that stuff would have probably been like hit harder. Yeah, probably yeah. would have been, and it's not like it's irrelevant no. now. There's so, but it's, but I think yeah, contextually, it probably would have had a bigger impact 
on mm-hmm. horror audiences then and been more prescient. Yeah. But um, there's more Stab 6. So instead of oh, watching Shaun of the really? Dead, um, yeah, there's a scene. I'm sorry. I'm has- so invested in like all of the alternative like Stab <laughs> I stuff. I love it so much too. It's so fun. Like I was going to make a joke about how much I want to see the shitty Stab 5 with time travel. Yes, like, yes. Can someone please just make that movie? Exactly. Sell it to Netflix. I want it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, sell it to Netflix. <laughs> That's an easy sell right there. So it's stab- they, they are watching Stab 6 instead of Shaun of the Dead. Yes. Um, and so it cuts to a scene apparently and it's like it cuts immediately to the screen of two actors have like having sex and acting very poorly apparently mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's meant to be like it i think the the scene would have been meant to play like in a really humorous way obviously as the stab scenes do and so sydney walks in on kirby and jill watching that nice. and they have an exchange about the se- their franchise and so oh. um so it's brief and i think it might have Reading it, it feels a little clunky and it feels a little in the context of Sydney in this script, who who has basically owned her role. And basically, like she said, like, I've earned and there's a line where she's like, I've earned the right to say fuck it. Oh. <laughs> and so she's she's a lot more like Not she doesn't give she doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. yeah. She's a okay. lot more like like hardened, I think, than right. than what we see. Mm. Okay. So mm. she but she asks them because they're like, oh, crap, Sydney's here. Like, this is really disrespectful. She's like, <laughs> oh, is this the one where Amy Poehler's the killer? And then someone, or Kirby's like, well, actually, it's Heidi Klum, but then she has the botched surgery, and then it becomes Amy Poehler. So this <laughs> is like, oh, my God. <laughs> this is, like, something that, sh- that would have happened in Stab 6. Uh, also, but we don't get enough about Sydney, like, acknowledging that film franchise in the books. Like, I would love to see her, like, I mean, I'm sure she doesn't give a shit, but, like, I would love to see her, like, talking about yeah. Stab 5. <laughs> Yeah, because we really only get it in the second film, right? When she's like, yeah. oh, it's opening weekend. Okay, I'll just let this go. And then I yeah. hopefully never have to deal with it. Well, and she deals with, like, you know, well, the, stab three. the set of her house and stuff. But, like, but this is right. her, like, talking about the movies and the content that, the, of what they are, you know? Yeah, like shitty horror films. Yeah. Right, right. And so, yeah, that's a big, that's one of the big shifts that I'm like, that could have been fun if it was played carefully. Because otherwise it could be definitely very kind of ham, ham-fisted. Yeah. Oh yeah. Another thing is Sydney's call with Ghostface after Olivia's death is very different in tone, and I actually prefer the the final cut. The, yeah, because her answering the phone and just saying what is just I yeah. love that line yes. so much. Um, but this is more like she's very scared and she's breaking down crying, so she is less uh, strong. It feels like that's interesting. Mm. If you said like she she seems more hardened in the script than in that scene, she's breaking down that's o- what, over this girl she doesn't know. I read it right. and I really I was like, wait, did I miss something? Because it's like her 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 legs failed her and she's crying. And I'm uh, like, that's and a I huge get it. shift, like, right? Shocking, but like that's not what we saw. Maybe, maybe it's more the it's not she's not crying over Olivia's death. It's more so like she's it's like oh shit, it's happening again. again. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so after, uh, oh, and Charlie's phone and not Trevor's phone is the one that calls Olivia, calls him. Um, oh. The big changes around kind of the whole hospital scene, I think, are kind of the most major that would have shifted what they would have had to well, film, really. Before you say something, I want to yeah. ask, because people always complain about the hospital scene and they're like, it feels- Oh, I mean the, the first hospital scene. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, never mind. No, we'll get into other, yeah, I'm kind of working chronologically here. <laughs> Um, so Rebecca is, so Sydney decides to leave town after Olivia's death mm. and oh. she and Rebecca have plans to do it. So basically like they're all on board and there are some exchanges between Gail and, and Dewey and Sydney and Dewey in this cut that I do think are kind of hard to read for fans of the trio where Sydney is mm. kind of really, really sh- aggressively short with Gail. Dewey kind of, mm. t- Dewey tells her to shut up at one point. Oh. It's just a weird, it's a weird shift that I'm like, ooh, I don't know that I would have liked to see this mm-hmm. particularly. Yeah, that doesn't seem quite true to them, does it? 
I, I didn't think so. And and we actually had this talk with someone recently who who I believe has also read this. He said, oh, and there's a line where Gail says, I'm sorry. I know this is all my fault because I wrote the books. And Sydney says, yeah, it is your fault. No. But I, sh- I, I, I should have known better. And it kind of, it, like, they don't really get a moment where they clear the air on that, which, mm. is, a, which is a bummer. Not that I recall from reading. And I did just scan back over this too. But um, yeah, so I was bummed about that, that that was in there. But I'm glad that that didn't translate. I, I prefer how they handled their interactions where it is clear in the final cut that Gail is jealous of Sydney. And she's, right. you know, thinking about her, what her career used to be or what it could be. And I think it's done subtly enough that we get it without it having to be so explicit. Well, I was telling Joe before you came in here, like, the one thing I wish that we could get in these movies is more of a Sydney Gale dynamic, because we mm-hmm. don't really get that outside of the oh, first yeah. movie. And, I mean, again, hopefully we get it in five if those sure. trailers aren't lying. But yeah, like that that makes more sense that that was originally in the cards for this script. Yeah. So mm-hmm. one of my favorite moments that's cut that I really wish would have made it, and it would make sense if they had, you know, situated the set right. Yeah. But um, basically, when they decide to leave, Sydney tells Rebecca to go get the rental car. And then she gets the call in the parking garage. And she gets, basically, she gets killed in her car. Um, her throat gets slashed. And so it's a very, it's a pretty quick scene. It's not really like the, ex- it's not, it's a little bit reminiscent of the exchange we get. But it's very much its own thing where she says, um, instead of saying, you are the message, which I think is more, I think is more effective. Yeah. He straight up says, tell Sydney that I'm going to kill her publicist as the message. <laughs> like, he just straight up tells her he's gonna kill her, and then he, like, busts into her window and kills her. So, the right. part that I love is that it cuts to the news scene where the 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 press... Uh, what mm-hmm. do you call that? The press conference. Oh my god, press conference. <laughs> Brain fart. And Dewey's answering the questions, and basically the rental car comes barreling through the crowd and smashes into the media van, and, and oh. Rebecca's body is in the front seat. Oh, that's cool. Which I think would have been cool. That's like, um... Uh, what is oh god what is that uh stephen king book where he kills people by running into the crowd during christmas oh mr mercedes it's a very mr mercedes vibe yeah. <laughs> right that would have been very expensive though yeah yes yeah which and we're already working with a 40 million dollar budget here oh yeah we haven't gotten yeah. to the budget yet. no we have not <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah there's also this line trace i i include this line specifically i just copied it. i was like oh okay so this was cut there is obviously more like prolonged tension with gail and judy i think it plays better in the movie this line though i was like oh god thank god gail didn't say this last part so she calls her deputy judy and then judy corrects her at one point she says it's judy or it's deputy hicks but never deputy judy and then gail says got it another small thing it's okay to be in love with my husband but if you ever act on it i'll cut your balls off Yeah, see that, like, you can tell that that's supposed to be funny, Trace. I know you're laughing, but I don't, I don't actually think that would have gotten a laugh. Yeah, it's, it's too mean. Too, and also, like, I just, I don't know. Like, I Well, feel it's like really Gail- slightly transphobic, right? Like, hey, you're a masculine woman who's threatening my marriage. Oh. I will cut you. Yeah, I think, and I think that there's some something about that. There, there actually are a couple of things in here that are a little bit like, um, I want to say Olivia calls Robbie a uh, closet boy mm. at one point. So there are some kind of like, you know, little teenage homophobia thing, you know, throughout, which I think is kind of interesting because I don't really recall that being as prevalent in any of the The only time, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's just when she calls uh, Billy a pansy ass mama's Mama's boy boy, and then, and then Randy calls him a pussy ass wet, wet rag. Yeah. Well, homo repressed mama's boy. Homo repressed, yes. yes, Oh, and I think in two, 
No, no, no. In four, she says in the call after Olivia said, she says, you got the balls for that kind of like that kind of talk, but it's not nothing as explicit yeah. as straight mm-hmm. up like closet board. You know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of like tonally kind of weird. Like we've moved beyond that at this point. Right. Yeah, exactly. There is no Stabathon, which uh, I don't like. Yeah, the Stabathon is key. Yeah, I really, and I do appreciate whatever it was, whether that was a later draft of Kevin's script or whether that was, you know, one of the the shifts with with Aaron coming in or any of the other writers that mm-hmm. introduced that. I do think it works and it works especially well, obviously with the new or with the final script, which has the filming of the murders and all yes. of that. Mm-hmm. Was it replaced with anything? Like, like, okay. So there are some like other scenes are kind of prolonged a little bit. So, um, so Kate's death, essentially after, after Rebecca's death, they go back to the house. Uh, Sydney does they uh, let the two officers escort Jill to Kirby's house. So they just go straight to Kirby's to, mm. to hang. It's not meant to be a party or anything. They're just going to hang out. Yeah. And so she has guidance. And actually that scene, that whole house thing ends up being more of all the young cast interacting with each other, which yeah. I do. I would have liked that a yeah. little bit more. I think that, that, that it's done kind of well in this script. Um, but Kate's death is much more graphic, and I really would have preferred this version. So mm-hmm. basically what happens is that, you know, the whole Sydney, uh, the wind chimes are going, and she takes them down. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a, a couple of fake-out moments there, but basically the same thing happens where Kate's like, oh, I the ch- the chimes fell down. Oh my god, Jill! I put them back up. <laughs> and so, but then what happens is she's, it's just kind of like a calm conversation where she's, Sydney's like, well, I told uh, Jill she could go to Kirby's and the officers are with her and blah, blah, blah. And and Kate says something like, oh, great. I think this call. Oh, and they talk about the, the teacher being arrested. So yeah. again, people are calmer at this point, reasonably so. Because mm-hmm. they think, well, at least some of them do, think that Mr. Baker's a killer. Right. And she's like, oh, this calls for a glass of wine. So in this one, Kate still does drink. And she's like, oh, I drank and did Ambien and that's or took Ambien. That's why I didn't hear anything. Oh, uh, which that that's in deleted scenes, everyone. So if you're wondering yeah. why Mary McDonald acts like... She does yeah. in this movie. She is loopy. She's been drinking wine and taking Ambien like for the entire duration of the film, but that's cut out in the deleted scenes. Yeah, and there's yeah. actually uh, and in the way that it happens in the script, I think it works better in the deleted scene because um, okay. she's definitely more apologetic. It's kind of like she thinks it's funny in, mm. in the way it reads. So <laughs> yeah. So what happens is that they some they get a call. Sydney gets a call. She hangs up. Kate gets a call. Hands it to Sydney. Um, she says, like, it's for you, essentially. And um, they go to the, the window or the door where the by where the chimes are, and they see Ghostface, and they freak out, and they run to the front door and open it. And then Ghostface comes in, and basically, Kate is in front of Sydney, and it says that he he just starts stabbing her. Like, and Ooh. he is, he is, um, she's the shield for Sydney. Oh, so shit. he's, like, stabbing the shit out of her, and Sydney's in front, and she finally breaks away. So I think that that would have been, it's definitely cruel. There isn't a, there isn't a moment of like, oh my God, Kate, tell Jill I'm sorry, blah, blah. Like there's no exchange. She just fucking dies, it seems like. So, mm. so I do think that would have been really pretty graphic. It sounds so hardcore, but I feel like we get so little of the character removing that empathetic bit with her would, would be a loss. I agree. Yeah. And, and that's how it feels. It feels like she's just another body and. Yeah. She's just kind of like a drunk person. There is a scene earlier where she gives more background, like on Sydney's, more background is given on Kate. And, okay. You know, she's uh, actually Maureen's kid sister. And, you know, she's the only family they have since Sydney's father died. So they make all those points a lot clearer early on. 
But, oh, because that's something else, though, too, because her dad died before this movie, which is, right. I think, in one of the early drafts is what brought her back to the town. Or, I guess, it was like, oh, let's do the books are there. Because- it's definitely not this, for sure, but this is the first time. Like, they, they state this is the first time she's been back since her father died. Mm, right. So, apparently, she did go to, she didn't skip her father's funeral, but <laughs> they make it clear that, you know, her father died, yeah. and she was here, and now she's back. Because, again, at this point, it's been however many, you know, 10, what is it, 10 years since 3? 11. So Sydney is very much on board with the book tour and she's, you know, she's living her new life yeah. and that's, you know, how this is. The trio is reunited after Kate's death. So they come, the other two come back to the oh, house good. and they have a moment. Sydney gets attacked by Ghostface or basically he chases her after he kills Kate and they fight in the yard um, and then disappears. The weird thing though is that like it jumps to a scene where Robbie and Trevor, or I'm sorry, Charlie and Trevor show up at Kirby's house to join the others right after that. <laughs> Just like, Okay. Never at the party. <laughs> yeah, I do. Well, I do wonder if they would have how they would have logically explained Charlie getting there so quickly because clearly he's the one who yeah. did this. Yeah. But anyhow, uh, Perk almost done with this. Perkins and Hoss, Hoss's deaths happen in the same kind of manner, except Perkins gets his throat slashed instead of getting a knife through his skull. Oh, but the knife through the skull was Craven's idea though, because he had read a story about that and he was like, "I want to do that." Oh <laughs> well, Craven, no, there is no Bruce Willis, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the that, worst line of the franchise that is a good far. note some of the fan edits will cut out that line yeah uh, my favorite that, one that's too. a really smart move yeah. i think they all do they all cut that shit out because mm-hmm. it's a legitimately um, awful line yeah, yeah it's, it's really bad. bad so yeah there's more group group action the finale mrs robert so the one thing that i do like this is kind of and this could have made they could have thrown this in in the final so whenever after the killers are revealed basically they do the same kind of explanation. They're talking about the remake and how uh, Charlie and Jill are meant to be the new Sydney and Randy mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. And they talk. And then she says, my own mother had to die or something. And Charlie says something to the effect of, yeah, and she's a, the drunk, you know, whore or something. And he's like, I mean, she she tried to make out with me once at blah, blah, blah's party. Oh, weird. Or something. So, so they give, like, context that not only is her mother, like, you know, she's a pill-popping yeah. drinker, but she... Also, is just like she's just like Maureen. Yeah. She's just like Maureen. Yeah, and that's maybe she's a like, slut, just like your mother. Exactly. That's I think that's what they oh they God. try to hint at. The line could have been, "Well, she's a slut, just like her sister." God. <laughs> See, that would have been bad fan service because no right? one knew that she said that. <laughs> yeah, except for Sydney. Exactly. Well, if Sydney said it, <laughs> right? Yeah, Sydney would say that. She's a slut, just like my mom. <laughs> God, no. Maybe she's a slut, just like my mother. <laughs> Uh, Sydney, you're talking about your own mom right now. <laughs> so the last, so the last bit that I, I do think this is where this comes from. So, um, so one thing in here is that there is no hospital scene. Oh. So what, what in this script? And I don't know if there is a version of the script that Kevin wrote that added it, or if it really, truly was just something from one of the other writers. So what? Did, I, I may have more info on that, but what is what is in your version? So the difference is that at the end, the same stuff happens. Sydney gets stabbed. Mm-hmm. Jill is, you know, she does her shit, and then they come and rescue her. And basically, Gail and Dewey are outside, and they're like, "Oh, we have someone who's alive." And the last line on the script says, "You mean Sydney?" And it's it's meant that it's Jill. Um, so they're pulling Jill out of the house. So it essentially, does end. It does have a bad. Uh, sorry, it does like end a- with Jill being alive. So because she's talking, basically, she's like saying kind of similar to the stuff she says at the hospital in the final cut, like, "Oh, I don't want the cameras on me," but it's like not really believable. And they're taking her out of the house, yeah. So then it's right. kind of, that's how it ends. So, all right, so it, it ends basically with Sydney presumed dead. 
Presumed dead, yeah. So, the uh. only because that's something that people are always like, I hate that fucking hospital scene. And we'll talk about it more when we go through the plot. But the bit of information I have. So, apparently the hospital finale scenes were added later on in the writing process. So, it wasn't it wasn't done during filming. Uh, it was done okay. before filming began. But the original script ended at the house, as Ari just said. There were rumors. And I think this is because... Williamson, you know, had done the three film treatment. Like, here's a new trilogy of lined up. So, mm-hmm. like, I wonder if during the writing process, if they were like, hey, give us something to end it if we need to end it. Mm-hmm. But it says there were rumors that Sydney would then possibly be suffering from amnesia in the next film, oh, unable God. to recall that Jill was the killer. There were also rumors that Williamson was upset that this ending was changed. But unfortunately, we don't know the extent because did he write the hospital ending? Or did, was that a Kruger thing? Like, I, unfortunately, that's something that we don't know. And right. if we ever get to talk to Kevin Williamson, hopefully we will find that out. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think for me, the, so this ending, I, I get it in the context of, a, of like, kind of like a sold trilogy. Like, if they were all confirmed. Mm-hmm. Four through six, cool. Like, I would be cool with this. I would not ever be cool with this as, like, a you know, if we never got another one. Well, that's why I've always been fine with this as an ending with this hospital scene, which I know we're about to get like a fifth film, but I've always been like, but if, if this, if four had been the nail in the coffin of this franchise and it ended with Sydney presumed dead with the killer getting away, Mm -hmm. that would feel like the biggest betrayal of this franchise to me. So I'm, glad and, and joe maybe you disagree and i kind of do yeah well i guess it's new decade new rules so i guess it would fit the theme yeah i mean i i don't think that scream has ever been a mean-spirited franchise but there is something kind of poignant about because so much about this film feels like we're handing it off to the next like i remember it was very much oh this is the start of a new trilogy as long as this new film does well which of course it doesn't but i remember when it ended, I was like, oh, how daring is this ending? And how how weird will it be if we then have to do something with, like, following Jill? Like, if that had been the original plan. Uh, yeah, I think um, someone mentioned the other day, we were talking about this, that one of the ideas was to have them go to Jill and Kirby go to college. Like Tragedy Girls. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, where Kirby, like, never, like, thought that, Char- some- thought that Charlie was the killer or something, but she survived. But didn't right. know about the Jill part. And I guess they go and then they basically like it's about Jill continuing her murder spree like on the DL or something. Mm. So someone mentioned that. I don't know how there's how much truth is behind that. But yeah, I, so for me, I think this is I mean, this is kind of like my bit on this. And I I think I view four and, and it kind of is the ending, the version we got in theaters. I want to say it's the version that we needed. And it mm. was it just so happened that it was because. It, we needed it because there wasn't another, the, the, yeah. you know, the new trilogy didn't work out. Right. Um, but I'd like to watch it as kind of like a nice coda to the trilogy. Hmm. As a, And it is kind of a standalone thing for me in that this idea of, it, it really ultimately comes back down to the main trio again. And I want to say that this is like the final hurrah for the main trio in this way for me. Like, had that been it, I would have been content with that. Because what's happening is they are trying to remake it. They're trying to basically say, like, okay, it's our time to tell a story now. We're going to redo this. We're going to do it in this new crazy way. And ultimately, what happens is all the new cast members get killed, including the killers. And I think it it adds more impact to the don't fuck with the original thing, because the survivors are the originals. So I, I really like that. And if that had been the end of the series... 
I think that would have been such a lovely, yeah, okay, good. You know what? Our people are good. And without mm-hmm. a con- without a continuation of this story that justifies killing one of them or justifies them no longer being in it, right. I think this is kind of the best thing that we could have had. Yeah. yeah, it's the last hurrah, but without losing any of them. And we get the impression that they're all now in better spots than yeah. where we left yeah. them at the end of three. Yeah. And then I, so I think now with the, you know, with where it could head, there, there can be room for them to really shift over to a new cast and knowing what, you know, the reaction to four was, knowing what's worked over time, knowing what fans, you know, like or don't like. I do think that can be handled with more care. And it is nice to know that it's heading in a direction where Kevin Williamson has seen the noon film like seven or eight times he says and he's and he says it's really really good so, so probably more than the number of times he's, he's seen, seen four, four. Right? <laughs> <laughs> assumption exactly. assumption yes yeah so i mean i think that that bodes well just considering how much difficulty three and especially this film went through with the writer writing being shifted and their right. original plans being shifted and i am hopeful for that but again if this is the last one we got i will just i will like totally stand up for it anytime and say hey you know what this is what I'm content with this being the last one. Right. So yeah, I think that's why I have such a, I mean, independent of it kind of, I know Trace mentioned this being like the linchpin for our marriage. Um, (laughs) 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 In addition to that, I just think it's a a lovely, like a lovely way to bring back things that we're familiar with. Add like really, I love the hospital scene. I love Jill going nuts on herself. it's It's just so wonderful. I think these are really great twists and subversions. So yeah, I'll stand up for this movie in a day of the week. Absolutely. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, do you have any final words to say before we kick you out of this recording studio? No, thank you for having me back for this. I know that these are really sacred episodes for y'all, and I appreciate you uh, thinking of me because this is a really important movie for me. And I think for a lot of us, it's an important franchise, obviously, for a lot of the horror queers following. So, Oh, yeah. If you could answer one final question, how many times would you say you have watched Scream 4 in the year 2021? <laughs> oh, I kind of mentioned this earlier, probably like nine or ten. I think it's more than that. Well, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> About once a month. <laughs> that I can remember nine or you ten. You need to log them on Letterboxd. Yeah, I, I don't like to log rewatches, but anyway. Oh, but there's a mark, there's a thing for rewatches. Oh, I know. I just don't like that. <laughs> it is nobody's business how many times. Ex- <laughs> the only business it is uh, is uh, my Twitter followers who watch me like drunkenly rant at three in the morning when I'm rewatching things. So, yeah, <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you so much, Ari. I mean, again, we had not read that script, so it would have been really the only big difference um, that that wasn't in yours is that Wes Craven does mention in the commentary that before we get the stab six and seven opening, the original opening was Sydney holding a dinner party celebrating the publishing of her book. She was going to get attacked, and then the movie flashes forward three years later. Mm-hmm. And, Hmm. Bob Weinstein said that was not a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) And what Bob says goes. Bob, thank God Bob's not in the picture anymore. So now we can just see, you know, they can do whatever the fuck they want. But um, yeah, no, I would have, I wouldn't have minded reading that. That sounds, that sounds pretty cool. Basically (laughs) send Ari any other drafts of the script that you may have come across. If you have other ones, send them to me on the DL. I'm happy to spend time reading them and chatting about them. The only thing I won't do is theorize about things that haven't happened yet. So sorry, we're not going to, we're not going to be talking about screen five. Yeah. What was lovely to talk with you, Ari. We'll we'll talk to you again later on this year. You sure will. (laughs) Thanks guys. All right. Bye. Okay, so back into the production. So now that the writing is out of the way, let's go into the casting. Because not only did this movie Mm. (laughs) have issues in the screenwriting process, it also had issues with the casting process. So 
Of course, you know, a year before we open, April 2010, Craven's like, oh yeah, it's a total integration of those three, uh, of the trio and the new kids, which again, I know people have issues with the fact that all the kids are killed in this movie, but that's kind of part of the reason I why love I it. like I it. I love it. <laughs> I also feel like people forget Deputy Judy still lives, so it's not like the whole new cast gets eliminated, but yes, well, absolutely every single one of these teenagers is decimated. Oh. It's so good. Apparently, two people were like, there was a rumor going around that Jamie Kennedy was going to return. And in an interview with FearNet, Williamson goes, I would love nothing more than to have Kennedy in the film. However, I don't want Randy in the film. Oh, wow. Specifically because he said it would just completely deflate the impact of that moment in Scream 2. And I Mm -hmm. support that 100%. As we talked about in Scream 3, it doesn't work having him back. No. Not at all. With the casting switcheroo. So first of all, um, Emma Roberts was not the first choice to play Jill. I did mm-hmm. not know this. They offered this role to Ashley Green of Twilight. That, I mean, that's what I know her from. What else do you know her from? Uh, I know she's been in a couple of other low budgety horror films. And yeah. I don't want to talk shit about her because I know that Twilight is kind of like the Star Wars prequels where it's like, yeah. it's just no one's best performance. But I cannot imagine her in this role. I mean, you know, we say that, but honestly, like, I don't think people could imagine Jill, uh, Jill Roberts, Emma Roberts in this role because at the also time, fair. like, all she had done was Nickelodeon stuff. Right. Like, uh, nevertheless, uh, that that was a new bit of trivia that I did not know. Mm-hmm. The, uh, so the two big ones, and we have our fe- big female adult cast members. Lake Bell was originally going to play Deputy Hicks, and she had a scheduling conflict, and I was like, what the fuck was this? But she wrote on Twitter, sucks, scheduling conflicts with my current gig means I can't do Scream 4. Hey, horror bloggers, I know who the killer is. Hashtag I'll never tell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lake Bell. I, lo- I love Lake Bell. And oh, of she's course, great. If y'all don't know who Lake Bell is, please, I mean, go look at any cartoon. She's in a lot of voice work, but she's also a really good actress. Mm-hmm. I think, based on the timeline, her scheduling conflict was No Strings Attached, the Natalie Portman Ashton Kutcher film. Oh. Hmm. Actually, <laughs> I mean, I'm making a disparaging sound. That film was a success. So she probably made a better financial decision. Probably so. I mean, again, who, who could have thought that she was, well, I was going to say, like, she was could have done Scream 5 and 6, but whatever. Mm. <laughs> so that was that. They replaced her with Marley Shelton. I, again, my issue there is I'm like, those are two very different actresses. Yeah, just different tones, different vibes. Different looks. But I do wonder if Lake Bell would have, because, you know, Marley Shelton, she does the wide-eyed, like, kind of, because she's the red herring. Like, oh, I'm sorry, one of the red herrings one of them. in this yeah. movie. I wonder what Bell's performance would have been like. But, I mean, she's comedic, so I could have seen her coming off sort of similar. It's just, she, like, I feel like Lake Bell is much taller and would have been a bit more of an imposing figure i agree and yeah, i'm not saying lake bell isn't funny i mean again anyone who watches harley quinn can hear her as poison ivy and she mm-hmm. is deadpan hilarious oh, so good but yeah i i just again they're just it's i i would like to see what that would have looked like not mm-hmm. to say i don't like shelton in this movie i know a lot of people have issues with deputy hicks uh, i've come around on her i time. love her <laughs> well because it's kind of it is a weird performance that stands out but not as much as that of miriam mcdonald as kate roberts and Mm -hmm. this went to lauren graham aka lorelei gilmore herself she was announced and a few days into principal photography dropped out yeah so we have we actually have like footage of her presumably i will i i don't 
think so. I, I don't think she had actually, I think, yes, filming had started. I don't think she was called to set yet. Oh, uh, I see. Okay. But there's no like, oh, it's a scheduling conflict here. I don't know why she dropped out of this movie. I thought I saw somewhere that it was creative differences. So I wonder if it was part of, I mean, I guess it would have been too late for some of those script changes that we were talking about, but I wonder if they just, it wasn't meshing or something. Maybe so. I mean, and again, unfortunately, in the final cut, the role of Kate is, it's honestly probably the worst character in the film, just in terms of like screen time, character development. Yes. We talked about this before recording, like she just she feels like she's in a completely different film than everyone. And granted, like, I mean, do I quote the I have scars too. No one ever asked me about my scars. Like a lot. I absolutely do. (laughs) (laughs) Not for the reasons the film is thinking. 100%. So that being said, and look, I love Gilmore Girls. Mm -hmm. I like Lauren Graham a lot. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I don't think it would have been better than Mary McDonald, but I'm just like, I can't see Lauren Graham acting the way Mary McDonald acts in this movie. <laughs> no, I mean, it's interesting. I think the maternal aspects would have definitely still been there. I'm trying to envision her character from like Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, because I feel mm. like that's maybe the closest we would have gotten. But there's absolutely something regal about Mary McDonald because like, I don't know. I doubt you have watched it, but she is the president in Battlestar Galactica. Like, that's one of her most famous roles. Right. And I don't know. I I totally buy her as this kind of regal authority figure, but she gives off a lot of warmth and humanity. Like, my big criticism of this character in the film is just, like, she's not there. And I see the actress portraying her, and I know what she's capable of delivering, and she needed more screen time. Yeah. I mean, she, she needed a character. This she isn't a character something. in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, those are the big casting things. Um, I, we haven't gotten any of that for Scream 5, so, I mean, we're already in good water there. Yeah, from as far as we know, nobody had to drop out. <laughs> <laughs> Days into filming because Oof. of creative differences. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going into actual filming. So, as I said earlier, we were working on a budget of $40 million. And... I want to just say right away, because people are like, when they talk about the failure of this film, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Oh, it shouldn't be so high. What were they thinking? Yes, exactly. But here's the fucking thing. The, <laughs> we're starting to get angry. <laughs> the budget for Scream 3 was also $40 million. And that was is. when they were filming it in 1999. Mm-hmm. So so this movie's cheaper. This movie is cheaper when you take inflation into account. And granted, is most of that money going towards our central trio? Yes, probably. Probably so. And Wes Craven and probably Kevin Williamson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nevertheless, people are like, oh, that's like, don't give a slasher 40 million. I'm like, okay, but they did that already and it made money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I just, I really hate that argument. I'm also like, dude, give me a $40 million slasher. I'm fine with that. <laughs> well, also, it's Scream. You know, I recognize that this is a full 11 years after the last film and the last film didn't do as well as the first two, but it still made a lot of money on its initial production. So, they probably thought, we are working with a recognizable IP. This is a bet worth taking. I agree. And I don't blame them for that. Even though Scream 3 underperformed compared to the first two films. It still printed money. 
I think worldwide, though, the gross was like 10 million less. Like, mm-hmm. it wasn't that big of a dip. Exactly. Critically, yes. Sure. <laughs> For more on that, please go listen to last year's episode on Scream 3. There we go. All right. So, principal photography begins on June 28th, 2010 in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And it was scheduled to end on September 6th after a 42-day shoot, but instead concluded on September 24th. So, it went on for almost three more weeks. Ooh. I am wondering if that was also when Kevin Williamson was called back <laughs> to the Vampire Diaries. Maybe, yeah. Okay, so end of 2010, we're now into January 2011, a mere three months before this movie is set to come out. After test screening in January of 2011, Craven and Weinstein did not think two scenes played well for the audience, and this would have been the opening sequence with Amy Teagarden and Britt Robertson, mm-hmm. as well as the parking garage sequence with Allison Brie. Interesting. I remember this was announced. They all returned to Detroit in late January and early February 2011 for four days of additional shooting. Craven did write a lot of the dialogue in these scenes. Yeah, because Williamson wouldn't have been available. Yes. I will say... My two qualms with this. So with okay. with Alison Bree's death scene, the original shot thing was, you know, she gets the call, I'll put you in the morgue. She does not go to her car. She runs to the door and then is stabbed. So they added all the stuff with her in the car to make it more suspenseful. You know, we have that shot under the car mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, is he going to slit her ankle? I like it. I kind of like it, but okay. at the same time, it makes this character very stupid when she gets out of the car. Yeah, because I, I I mean, I listened to Wes Craven's commentary and even he says, you know, like, you don't ever get out of the car. Like, why does she get out of the car? But I think part of this is that she also thinks that she's trapped in an abandoned parking garage. So rescue slash salvation is a mere hundred meters away. You make a break for it. Maybe you'll get there. I can see it. I can see it. I can see the idea behind it. Like, they're like, oh, we need a set piece. Unfortunately, I just don't think the set piece that we get really warranted it when we could have had an extra five minutes of character work with the original trio or the kids, you know? <laughs> oh, but you're thinking of this the wrong way. We need sensationalism. <laughs> we need death. We need gore. We don't want characters. Well, less making sense to me is the switching of this opening scene. And this may be my polarizing statement because I do prefer the originally shot opening for this in which Amy Teagarden dies first and Britt Robertson dies second. It is a shorter. It's quite a bit shorter. Yeah. Well, and we don't get the garage callback. Yes. My thing is, I think it's scarier. And maybe it's because I've watched this alternate opening without the score because that's how it is on the Blu-ray PS. The fan edits do incorporate the score back into this so you can go see it there. Yep. Watching Amy Teagarden get stabbed on this couch multiple times as Britt Robertson, like, watches her get killed, Mm -hmm. I think is profoundly disturbing, profoundly upsetting, and really effective. I mostly agree. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna Mm -hmm. flip and do what you just did for the Alison Brie one. I mostly agree. I feel like it makes the Britt Robertson character look really stupid because she thinks that it's just play acting and there's blood going everywhere on this couch and you're just like a girl that you're watching a murder right now come on totally fair point i don't even disagree with you i just and granted also there are some fan edits that merge the two so Hmm. we do get amy teagarden getting attacked but not stabbed on the couch okay we get the Brit Robertson doing the you're not real, then she's killed, and then we move into the garage. Interesting. Okay. And there's there's versions of this where I'm like, ah, but nevertheless, that is that. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, of course, when this was announced, 
people were going nuts. Craven told <laughs> Entertainment Weekly was really on this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Everything scream. Entertainment Weekly. We're on. The, we're on the scene. In February of 2011, Craven told them they're not reshoots. We had a couple test screenings, and we saw two scenes where they had moments you could add to, and we just saw a spectacular opportunity. Bob Weinstein told Wes Craven, "You go to your dark side, and I will give you the money." And that's what it was. I mean, here's the thing. They very much are reshoots. This is Wes Craven doing damage control. But I also don't doubt the fact that they looked at it and said, can we make this scarier? Can we make them proper set pieces and extend them out a little bit? And yeah, the Weinsteins gave them a little bit more money and they went off and did it. Yep, that's exactly it. Okay, so now let's finally, almost an hour and a half in, get to the release of this film. Have a hair Okay, yeah, I know. So... The film had its world premiere in Los Angeles on April 11th, 2011, but was released nationwide in North America on April 15th, 2011, in the number two spot, its mm. opening weekend, where it made $18.7 million. The number one film that weekend was Rio, with $39.2 million. Rio made, in its opening weekend, more than what Scream 4 would go on to make in its entire domestic run. Yeah, that's the sad thing, right? I mean, we're used to Scream films, especially those first two having reasonable legs the first one obviously has amazing yep. legs the demise of scream 4 is not this opening weekend gross it's the fact that people just abandoned it after that and i'm gonna say and i'm not blaming insidious for this but i think it's because insidious was doing so well and granted insidious made more domestically than scream but only by about 20 million but i think that was the talk of the town because people were like what is this new fresh mm -hmm. supernatural horror film and ooh, this stale exactly. fourth yeah whatever so unfortunately yeah it drops to number five in week two and by week three it had already moved out of the top 10 oof that is yeah. rough it would go on to gross 38.2 million domestically and 59.1 million internationally for a worldwide gross of 97 million dollars and mm -hmm. For comparison's sake, so we have Scream 4, 40 million budget, $97 million gross worldwide. Scream 1, 14 million budget on a $173 million worldwide gross. Yep. Scream 2 is a $24 million budget and a $172 million worldwide gross. Scream 3 is a $40 million budget and a $162 million worldwide gross. So yeah. while this did make its money back internationally, mm -hmm. you can see why they didn't make another film. Oh, sure. Yeah. When you don't hit your production gross domestically, if you have to be bailed out internationally, like sometimes if that international gross is big enough, then it's fine. But here it's like... No, you you barely made double your budget internationally as well. So it's it's just not good enough. Exactly. So it, it did fare slightly better on physical release. So it's released on DVD, Blu-ray, blah, 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 in October of 2011. And it entered at the number two, constantly number two. Uh. It did spend seven consecutive weeks in the top 20 of the chart. So hopefully they made some money back there. But mm -hmm. whatever. Now let's go into this critical reception. <sighs> okay. As of this recording, it is sitting at a 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, that was not the case. Because um, no. 60%, as we all know, is the fresh part. Like, like When you hit 60, you are considered fresh. It was not yeah, <laughs> fresh. We just got it there in, I think, the last year. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yay, we did it. We got an average score of 5.9 out of 10. And on Letterboxd, it's got a 6.4 out of 10. Audiences pulled by CinemaScore gave it a B-, minus, which isn't the best word of no. mouth. In terms of general criticisms and non-criticisms. <laughs> non-critics? 
<laughs> no, no. So, so critics, uh, they, they praised Craven's direction and Williamson's dialogue. Okay. They liked the homages it paid to the original. However, with critiques, we are looking at a cliched formula of the slasher genre. Old-fashioned formula, no scares. The film is dated. Uh, relying on obvious cliches doesn't seem ironic anymore. Just easy. Suddenly, it's the horror thriller that, like, your parents are excited about. Yeah, see, there, there's, going back to what Ari was saying about, like, why didn't they include more homages to the original? I think they were trying to save off those sorts of criticisms, right? They didn't want to be your grandfather's or your parents' slasher film. They wanted to be hip and fresh and new. Fun, hip, and scary. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, okay, but I've got some quotes. And Do you have any, too? I do not, no. Okay, cool. Let, let's go through. And the, my longest one is from Mr. Nick Shager at Slant Magazine. Okay. He says, Yet for all its self-reverentiality, the most telling aspect of this latest film is its conspicuous refusal to address the bottom-line cash-grab motivations of most slasher saga follow-ups, which its pointless tale, arriving 11 years after Scream 3, and with its three headliners absent from the big screen for much of that time, most certainly and depressingly exhibits. Similar to the majority of its prior two installments, it's a hollow, fright-free riff on its own lineage, one that exudes an air of smug satisfaction about its supposed cleverness and mistakes articulating before then embracing cliches as subversiveness. Wow. Okay, there's, there's just a lot. There's a lot. Um, it, the way that the first part of that criticism is written makes it sound like the film is responsible for addressing the sins of all remakes. And you're just like, okay, well, I'm not sure that it has to address cash grabs in the horror franchise. That's a little bit of a big ask. But oh, A, we're throwing three and two under the bus. <laughs> Okay, that's a choice. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Joe. Because I have talked about, I have watched movies that are meta and self-aware, and I'm like, ooh, mm -hmm. like this movie thinks it's a lot smarter than it is, and that tends to be the downfall for a lot of meta horror. Otherwise, with me, right? Do you get smug from this movie? I mean, that was the word that really stuck out to me. I don't get smug from this. Mm -mm. If anything, I definitely get. The kind of eagerness to break the mold and say, like, we are not like other films that are trying to do this in the wake of what Scream did to the horror industry franchise genre. Yeah. Like, I, I very much get the film trying to distinguish itself. Like, we are aware of what has happened, and this is how we are commenting on it. But that is what Scream has always done. Like, yeah. that doesn't read smug to me. That reads Scream to me. I agree. So that's a review. Had I read that in 2011, I wouldn't have taken it seriously because it's very much like, oh, you clearly don't care for this franchise. Yeah, like, <laughs> I'm sorry. So we're not going to be gatekeepery. But one of the things that does tend to come out, I think particularly with franchises, right? Because they're mm -hmm. they're big and easy. Like, you can take aim at them because everyone's more or less familiar with them. Yeah. I feel like what often happens is you get the people who don't really know anything about them and don't understand what makes them special. And obviously, you shouldn't have to make a film for fans for it to work. But I think critics also need to have an understanding that they may not get everything a film is trying to do because it is also trying to play to fans. I agree. And, you know, I, I we've said this, I don't know if it's on air or if it's offline, but, like, I'm not really of the mindset that, like, oh, like, only horror critics should review horror movies. Yeah, because no, we don't feel that way. 
Yeah, I mean, again, like, if I wasn't just a horror critic, I mean, when I say just, I mean, like, <laughs> I only review horror films because right. that's, like, where I am at Bloody Disgusting. But if I was working at Entertainment Weekly or The Hollywood Reporter, like, I mean, obviously, you're reviewing all the movies, so. Mm-hmm. But you also then need to be able to know what distinguishes films. And, like, I don't grade a horror film the same way that I would grade a drama or a science yeah. fiction film. Like, I go in with different kinds of expectations. And it's just weird to me how people don't seem to be able to regulate their responses to different types of films. And that's that's why I always end up coming down really hard on Ebert and his reactions, because he hates horror films, and it comes out in all of his reviews. Well, then we have, um, talking about people that haven't done their homework, uh, Mr. Wesley Morris of the Boston Globe, who... He's talking about Woodsboro at first here, and he goes, Sydney is one of the strangest characters to appear in an American movie. <laughs> oh my god, what even is that sentence? Wait, wait. <laughs> she continues to come back to this bloody primal scene, meaning Woodsboro. Mm-hmm. And every time the death toll rises, she can't believe it's happening again. Um, Joe, how many of these movies take place in Woodsboro? Uh, this would be the second <laughs> out of four. Exactly. <laughs> And then he goes on to say, Williamson appears to be at a loss for what he'd like to say with a fourth scream beyond ka-ching. What? Oh, yeah, I know. There's a big speech at the end about how dirt cheap fame has become in 2011. It sounds desperate nonetheless. You'd believe it a lot more were it delivered by a Kardashian. <sighs> so tell me you missed the point of the film without telling me you missed the point of the film. It is... I mm, uh, so that's one of the more like like you just didn't get the film. You're a fucking idiot who tried to yeah. review it. Got it? Okay. Then we have like silly ones. Oh yeah. So uh, Todd McCarthy of the Hollywood Reporter talks about Kirby uh, Hayden Panettiere and goes, "She is the hottest film nerd ever seen on screen. Ew. Even if the lively actress playing her looks to be covered in an alarming oversupply of orange suntan spray." <sighs> this is in a review for the Hollywood Reporter. Talking mm-hmm. about an actress's appearance. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that's very where we were at. Probably not even in 2011. Like, you could probably find a couple of reviews from last year that are going to be talking this way. But wow, does that ever lend itself to the people who say, oh, well, critics are immaterial? Because it's like, dude, what the fuck does that have to do with anything? Like, yep. her appearance has no bearing on the success of the film. Also, the filter does add to her sheen. So <laughs> it, it doesn't help, admittedly. I already mentioned about um, Ebert. He said that the, the motive wasn't explained, but he also takes an issue with this. The girls go through the whole movie acting as if they're not about to be stabbed to death. The actors do what they can in a film that doesn't care about human insights. The characters are almost preternatural in their detachment. If you were embedded in events like these, wouldn't you be paralyzed with panic? And to me, I'm like, well, you're also missing the point because these are teenagers who think they're above it. Or that they are not actually in any kind of danger. Like, I've known a lot of people who take issue with the idea of a -a stabathon. Like, why would you hold an event like that when there's a killer on the loose? And A, because teenagers think that they will never be attacked, right? Like, they don't have the self-preservation. But also, most of those teens don't think they're going to be killed by a killer because they don't have a connection to Sidney Prescott, where all of the murders seem to be centering around her. I mean, I also, I mean, to make this timely, look at the fucking pandemic and how people don't care about what's going on Mm -hmm. unless it starts affecting them. Yeah. Like, that's the issue there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the other thing I think that people sometimes forget is that this movie takes place over less than 48 hours. Like, there's a very little time 
most of the characters don't even know about the other murders that have happened because they're happening in a different geographical location. And it's not like they're doing a massive press release and saying like, hey, two more people have been murdered. You should go home. Yeah. I have a couple more. I'll, I'm just going to do one more because it's also just it's a person that <laughs> shakes your head. <laughs> I constantly disagree with this person. It's okay. Kyle Smith of the New York Post. And mm. he says, um, occasionally there are satiric thrusts that are about as effective as being stabbed with a ballpoint pen. <laughs> Nobody reads anymore. Everybody wants to be famous. People spend too much time on the web. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Parts of the script seem like Junior Aaron Sorkin blasts at that awful internet, which people so unfairly used to say mean things about Aaron Sorkin and this film's creative team, director Wes Craven and writer Kevin Williamson. Huh? This is just silly someone says and this is of course jill marveling at sydney still being alive oh my god i love that line now oh, so it's much so good <laughs> so good but he goes admitting it doesn't make it less true and then in a parenthetical he says on the other hand having someone tell campbell your ingenue days are over is just mean nev bless her remains touching in her ineptitude Nev, not Sydney, Nev Campbell. Mm -hmm. She is still convinced that the way to play extreme stress is to squint slightly. And here I give you yet another drinking game. Wow. Okay, so once again, we're now addressing this as people and not characters. So we're removing it. I mean, you could... Yes, I have seen people say, oh, well, Nev Campbell, she always does the weird neck thing as Sydney. You know, like, yeah, these are artistic choices. You can say you don't like the way that Nev Campbell does this character. Um, I don't think it's mean to have a fictitious character who is obviously very jealous of Sydney say that her ingenue days are over when she's literally trying to kill her and take her spot. Yeah. I don't think that's mean. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I yeah. I, I don't either. <laughs> it's just, it, it, it it baffles me. And I'll confess that I think I'm probably guilty of this myself at times. But it's weird how certain critics will latch on to weird inane details. Also, the referencing of Aaron Sorkin as though Kevin Williamson has not always done dialogue that is witty and self-referential and meta and, you know, very speedy like you don't need to reference Aaron Sorkin. You can just say Kevin Williamson. Uh, yeah. But why? Because this is a silly horror movie that is beneath critics sometimes. Uh, yeah. And welcome to the New York Post, where we'd rather talk about Aaron Sorkin. Kyle Smith always comes across as a huge douchebag. So I just like, <laughs> I, li- uh, I, I literally, I, I just look at his blurb on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm like, oh, it's a red, it's a green splat. Shocker there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I, I love to have certain critics where I'm like, I just look to see what you gave a film and I will be the complete opposite because yeah. we are not in sync but um, okay we're almost done so let's move into some positive stuff and i didn't pull quotes and positive reviews because that's going to be our job today but yeah, yeah scream 4 was nominated for a teen choice award for best horror movie but it did lose to paranormal activity 2 because that's what the public was mm. eating up at the time okay and as we mentioned earlier in the year since its release many have credited scream 4 with foreshadowing the effects of social media on today's youth yes. and the extreme links they would go to achieve internet fame mm-hmm. and i pulled two articles that i found and both of them were written earlier this year in 2021. Oh, actually, it was for the 10th anniversary of the film because, yay, y'all, we're celebrating 10 years of Scream 4. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so one is um from Brian Kuyper for Bloody Disgusting that says, bet you didn't see that coming, why Scream 4 may be the best film in the franchise. And he does go on to say, you know, well, he comments on how 
Craven and Williamson saw like the seedy underbelly of social media mm-hmm. and like things like that and how the uh, deconstructing of the nature of fame in an age of Facebook, Twitter, blah, 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 like and how it was scary. And of course, a lot of critics did not believe that nor see that at the time. Yeah. But another article I found that I thought was very fascinating because it shows a critic revisiting their review and saying how they were wrong. And this is from Jermaine Lucier for Gizmodo. Uh, I'm sorry, he wrote an article for Gizmodo called I've Been Wrong About Scream 4 for 10 Years. And it was <laughs> <laughs> it was discussing his review for Slash Film back in 2011, which he gave it a 6.5 out of 10. So he didn't dislike it. Right. But he maybe got a little bit more positive. Oh, he loves it now. He's like, this is it might be the best film in the franchise. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> no, but he goes, you know, he goes on to say, you know, so now watching a film about a killer who hopes to murder and lie their way to becoming internet famous seems shockingly plausible. Ten years ago, maybe a little bit less so. But now you can see that kids do want to be famous for doing nothing because so many of them have been able to do just that. Mm-hmm. In 2011, it wasn't as widespread. Right. The only other thing I wanted to pull from him, and this is because it was a critique that I saw in a lot of reviews, was that Scream 4, quote unquote, isn't scary. Oh, that old criticism. Well, and we talked about it a bit in the new Candyman, right? But what Jermaine does, and I think he puts it in here pretty succinctly, he says, my original thoughts were mainly it was supposed to be scary. But dude, and I'm referring to myself 10 years ago, (laughs) the Scream movies were rarely ever, quote unquote, scary. They were intense and occasionally made you jump out of your seat, but that was never the main objective. The point was to subvert the horror genre by making them a whodunit, as well as use tropes from other horror films against the audience. Scream 4 does all of that beautifully. Maybe too much so. Interesting. I always have such a weird relationship with the the criticism about scariness. And I appreciate the fact that he mentions that it's tense or thrilling. Because mm-hmm. I've definitely always felt that about the Scream franchise. Like, I haven't found them as scary as certain other things. But... I will, and we've talked about this numerous times, credited mm-hmm. for having some of the best set pieces, right? Like, we have talked ad nauseum about Screen 2's double set piece and how great we think those are. Mm-hmm. Do I find it so scary that I'm looking under the bed for Ghostface? No. But do I think about that in the pantheons of, like, great horror set pieces in contemporary cinema? Absolutely. And, and that's the thing, too. I mean, like... I, Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. But I, I have gone on very long because, again, all of this stuff, I just, it, I feel like we're trying to, like, vindicate, validate, validate Scream 4's existence mm-hmm. after what, I mean, has been 10 years of people shitting on it. And I will say that, you know, years ago when I saw people start really talking about it and I saw these thing pieces coming out, it it felt so rewarding as a fan to be like, yes, mm-hmm. people <laughs> are finally it. starting to get it. Yes. <laughs> and that is kind of what happened to a lot of Craven throughout his career. And I'm only upset that he's not alive to see this today. And Williamson is, thank God. Mm-hmm. But I wish Craven could have seen that what would turn out to be his final film. Yeah has been much more warmly embraced than it was at the time of its release. Yeah, I I hope. I mean, listening to him on the audio commentary, which was done, I gathered, about a year after the film was finished and released. Yeah. Um, he definitely sounds proud of the film. So at this point, he would have known that it was a financial failure, but right. he still very clearly 
is happy with the finished result. I think there are a couple of things where he's like, oh, you know, I quibble with whether we could have done this differently or that was a change. You know, he's very like, go check out the deleted scenes if you want to see other versions of this. <laughs> so I think he knew that there were obviously he knew that there were some trouble stuff going on behind the scenes. But yeah, he seems genuinely pleased with the finished result. Yeah, I, 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 I gather that as well. I sometimes couldn't figure out if it was like a, oh, he's just, he's just a Hollywood businessman. Like he knows the business. He knows he mm-hmm. has to put a happy face on. Like when he's had a bunch of flops before. So it's not like he's, you know, I, I'm imagining he looks at this compared to something like Cursed, where it's like, this took years <laughs> off of my life. At least Scream 4, you know, yeah, we had some hiccups, but the film got made. It's not a disaster. What I always, I mean, and I, I say I lament this, but maybe not, but I always like, he never got cantankerous, like, no. say, John Carpenter did, you know, like, John Carpenter is very vocal about the flops and yeah. why he doesn't like Hollywood and blah, blah, blah. And Wes Craven stayed in the system, unlike mm-hmm. Carpenter, because Carpenter quit, you know. And I don't know if – and maybe Craven doesn't feel the same way that Carpenter does, or maybe he was more, like, able to handle it. But I do I, – I, what would it be like, you know, to have Craven uncensored on his time with, I don't know, everything? I don't know. He he always just comes off as the warmest, most gentle human being, right? Like, every time he's like, oh, yeah, I loved her. She did a great job. I really, mm-hmm. like, brutally killed her on screen. What a delightful yeah. actress she was to work with. And you're just like, <laughs> Grandpa, you were the nicest person. <laughs> <laughs> now let me coat me in blood, Daddy. Basically, uh, yeah. Drag me across concrete floor. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I mean, well, I think we should get to the plot. But, Joe, we- <laughs> we've spent almost <laughs> two hours talking on production, reception, uh, alternate scripts. I think we might need to take a break. Yeah. You know what, folks? Let's address the plot in a moment. And by a moment, I mean... We'll see you tomorrow. Unless you're listening to this in the future and it's just the next episode on your disc. So stay. thank you for sticking around for part one of our Scream 4 coverage. Please stay tuned for part two. Part two. 